Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Mikolaj Rasek. He's the founder and managing director of Mero Genomics Incorporated. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, his company a bit and what they do, and also uh, intermittent fasting and how that affects our microbiome. So welcome, Mikolaj. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Again, yeah, tell me a brief... Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I'm glad you're back. Uh, for people that haven't heard you before, tell me a bit about your background and then what's the premise of Mero Genomics? So my background is I'm a kind of hardcore scientist, I guess, <laughs> meaning I study science all the time and my mental processes kind of evolve around scientific thinking even on a daily basis. And I leverage my studies in the past and I guess my knowledge in order to start a company that the aim of which is to help people gain access to medical DNA testing. So basically, this is for consultation purposes where an individual, if, if need be, can use assistance in order to get access to DNA testing that can help that individual with ideally matching a, pre, a preferred medical intervention. What, what do you mean, like, specifically? What, what conditions and what interventions? What would be... Very difficult to maybe mention conditions, but let's just say, how do I subdivide the population? And that would include every single person in the world. So all of us, I would subdivide the population to four groups. The obvious one is presumed healthy individuals that can look at their DNA to screen themselves to see if they have any genetic predisposition to conditions that would potentially deteriorate their health. So that's one way. So that's, you're just looking forward for information. But then another one is pregnant women can use this type of technology to screen their unborn baby. So this is a couple of examples where there is not necessarily an immediate need, but you can look forward to. Same thing with pregnant women. They can also use that technology in case there are indications that there's something wrong with the pregnancy. And that can help to determine more specifically what could be going wrong and that could for example, help the doctors be better prepared for the complications of the delivery and, and so on. And then continuing on how you can use DNA testing in case there are complications, then it's for individuals who have cancer. They can use that information, for example, to determine what specifically caused cancer and that could influence management of the condition. Or another way is to look at a person's genetics in relation to how they handle certain medications, and that can include cancer medications. But what do you mean? You mean you're looking at their metagenomics, like how their Correct. current genetics and epigenetic state... Their DNA, okay, so how they how they process how they remove certain waste products from their body how they process certain nutrients is that what you mean like metabolic pathways the medication specifically that's referred to as pharmacogenetic testing and that determines how you metabolize products in that are circulating in your blood and that would include 
basically medication. That's where the money has gone in. Another concept you might be familiar with is the idea of nutrigenomics, which is basically how you might be metabolizing food in relation to genetics. But that's not verified scientifically because obviously no one wants to be putting millions of dollars to verify that. But that has been done with relation to approximately give or take about 300 different medications. So that means we could look at your genetics and see what kind of metabolizer you are and see whether medication that is prescribed to you, typically it's prescribed to you with an assumption that you are are a normal metabolizer of that medication, but that could or could not be true. The based of what's normal is based on assumptions of from collecting information over the years. And we know that the vast majority of people will metabolize drugs in a specific manner, but you can deviate from that. And pharmacogenetic testing can help you determine whether you deviate from being normal metabolizer. And if you do deviate, that might determine whether the dose of the medication should be changed into either higher or lower, depending on whether you are poor metabolizer or ultra fast metabolizer. So that gives you an example. Why, why, why look at the medication only? You know, like there's drug-induced nutrient depletion for quite a number of medications like metformin. You know, B12 can get sacrificed. So if someone, for instance, takes metformin and they're a bad uh, producer of B12, this would make it far worse, let's say. So why not, in, in addition to studying again, the metabolism of the drug itself, why not look at what it interferes with or prevents metabolism of and if that person is predisposed to problems with that pathway, this would exacerbate it. You know, why not look at both? I completely agree with you. This would be ideal, but this is these are very complicated studies that simply are not really feasible on a rapid scale, and you have to do it basically per each individual scenario. So it's just too complicated and too expensive. But that would be yeah. Ideal. But I mean, I'm sure some of these drugs, if they're studied, there are very specific consequences to the person like you know especially if a drug's been around for a while why wouldn't there be data that shows that oh like i said metformin you know it's probably pretty widely known that it suppresses b12 production so i'm sure other drugs like let's say statins whatever they may be that have millions and millions of people taking them wouldn't it be well established that there's certain you know again pathways that are affected and therefore could be targeted again valid points right but then from what i'm gathering you're describing on potential influence of the drug what's happening inside the body, how it might influence functions in the body. I'm saying, let's look at the other angle and how the body influences the drug itself. So this is what I'm referring to as metabolism of the drug, which can determine oh. the dosage of the drug as well. So, so how different how different can a response be? Like if I take a certain drug and someone else takes it, would I produce possibly totally different metabolites of the drug than someone else? It, perhaps not totally different metabolites, but quantity of all of them could be different because for example we both would get the same dosage of the drug based on historical evidence of what what our gender is and say our body weight and our age for example you could look at these stuff but it's still an assumption that we would fall into the general pattern but what if you are a normal metabolizer and the drug works great for you but i'm a super fast metabolizer so I get the same dose as you and I destroy the drug instantly. And the drug is not even doing any of its effect because I metabolized it too quick. And at this point, I would have no reaction versus you're all good and you're being successfully treated. So then you can use that information to start monitoring, hey, should we be doing different dosage? 
And for example, if you, if you choose to go with the normal dosage, while the pharmacogenetic test hints that maybe you are a different metabolizer than normal, and you see no effect from the drug, then indeed that really can help the managing doctor determine, you know what, we really should be changing the dosage and it tells you in which direction. So it's a very useful um, useful uh, example. And when it comes to pharmacogenetic testing, in my opinion, that's because it's a fairly cheap test. Anyone who has to take certain medications for cancer, if those medications have been worked out for personal genetics, I always say take the test. Same thing for individuals who have to take medications for mental health. The reason why is because we are highly susceptible to mental health medications. They can have unwanted side effects and we are very sensitive to these medications. So our genetics are very sensitive and many medications in cancer as well as in mental health have been worked out to personal genetics. And that, that's just, so, so these are just some examples I'm bringing forth in order to- but so, um, so if someone's a very fast metabolizer of a drug, you could say, oh, that's a good thing. But then you could say that's a bad thing because then they may require such high levels of the drug that it would be toxic to them or not useful. Or again, they could be metabolizing it to some intermediary, unusually or unexpected metabolite that could be toxic. Um, like, what are the common problems people will have if there's some some issue with them when they take a drug that are outside what was expected? But the worst would be to experience toxic side effects, right? And medications can produce toxic side effects, and and this could be contributing factor to that. While the same medication is totally potentially totally fine, so. And then again, because let's say you are, let's reverse it and you don't break down the medication fast enough and then it rapidly accumulates in your circulation and it starts having its negative effects that are unwanted because in a smaller window of say concentration of that drug, you'd be totally fine. But because you are not normal metabolizer, it leads to the buildup of the drug beyond the safe therapeutic window. So it's just simply a way of of um, confirming where in a spectrum you might belong in terms of using using medications and and as I mentioned, when it comes to cancer or mental health medications, I would always be looking for high quality pharmacogenetic DNA tests. But why why DNA? Why not why not something that's less static? Why not uh, epigenetic testing? To look at that, you know, what epigenetic changes yeah. marks are being added or removed due to the drug's interaction with you? Why not biomarkers? Why not more contemporary type or contemporaneous type effects? The ideal test probably would be to look at what are the metabolites and so on. But again, these are very difficult tests to perform. They're laborious versus pharmacogenetic uh, testing. You can do it once and you have results for the rest of your life for those medications. So there, so that's the advantage. And that is a static information. Something like epigenetics, that's not. Epigenetics is fluctuates based on, well, potentially it could be based on your daily living, right? So that's much more difficult to start to accurately correlate. While it's influential, of course, to start to properly know how to correlate your epigenetic status to how you might be metabolizing drugs. And all of them are important. You just have to choose your best option. It's because you can do thorough testing of everything. We don't even have the capacity. Epigenetics is actually one of those limiting ones because while we understand its importance, it's still difficult to know exactly how the changes in your epigenetic information might correlate 
the clinic outcomes and how different environmental cues might be altering that. It's just very complicated. Luckily, let's say artificial intelligence and of course the next generation sequencing technologies allow us to now obtain massive amounts of data. So then we are now reaching the, the, those limitations. But I think at this point, we are still limited with what we can actually do with that information. And that includes microbiome to a degree. While we're obviously expanding our education in microbiome, one of the limitations of, of still knowing how to link microbiome to clinical outcomes is its ability to change so dramatically. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. There you've got, right, plasmids and bacteria phages affecting the genetic composition of the bacteria, bacteria exchanging plasmids, ingestion of DNA from food and incorporation of that into the bacteria. Yeah, it moves much faster, I, I know, than than our human cells. And there, I guess you have to do metabolomics, proteomics, all that stuff to even see kind of what's going on, metagenomics to see what's possible of the bacteria, what they can produce. Yeah. So what, what do you do there? It's even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you kind of you know, hit the mark. It's so complicated. What would you, what would you be able to, to do there? Right? Like these studies are very expensive and you need to potentially probe so many different angles of information to get accurate pictures, picture, because taking a, a subset of that information, let's, let's say my, looking at microbiome might not be informative enough without say metabolomics, which is like, let's say, what are the byproducts of all of, of your metabolism, right? So, or proteomics, right? And as you mentioned, which is looking at what kind of proteins are being expressed in a specific tissue and then which tissues are we probing and, and, and so on. Now with microbiome, of course, there, there are different sites of microbiome investigation that we could be investigating for different purposes, but the one that typically attains most interest is our gut microbiome. And, and that makes sense because this, our gut or gastrointestinal tract would be where the largest population of, of microbes would reside. And hence that, that could potentially be most informative. And, and indeed, this is probably the area where, where we see most investigation over the years. And that's where the next generation sequencing finally allowed us to start really understanding the diversity that can happen within the gastrointestinal tract and how that microbiome can shift in relation to health or disease. So that's where where it gets really, really interesting. But having a pinpoint precision links of, hey, this is the microbiome and this is the expectation moving forward, that's, that's still in its infancy. We're still accumulating the data and we 
And one of the reasons why is because, yeah, these are not easy studies to do. And while I think it would be fantastic if every single one of us looked at our microbiome, gut microbiome, the, the challenge of that information is, do we have quality interpretation of that information available to us at the moment? Well, how about something like this? What exists? Yeah. Why not every six months have your microbiome, you know, sequenced and looked at? And then if you get sick or if you get a disease, at least you have a baseline of what you were when you were supposedly healthy and you can see the differences and maybe try to reestablish it the way it was. At least that, why not? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. That would be that would be better than nothing for sure. Again, uh, provided that one knows how to interpret that. And if you see changes and you could very well, and it would be actually based on my understanding, it would be highly expected that you would see changes between healthy state and disease or sick state, sick state for sure. But then also knowing how do you achieve the rebalancing act that's still yet to be deciphered. And of course, there are studies going on in that direction in terms of what kind of interventions can we do in order to implement specific microbiome in, in our gastrointestinal tract? And there are concepts. And of course, there is even the concept of the idea that potentially future vaccines might be like a form of, say, a probiotic or something like that, where you're actually swallowing specific microbes in order to attain to attain them. Um, immunological outcome, desired immunological outcomes. Well, I mean, we already do. We take probiotics, something like that. But from what I've heard, it, the, their action is while they're in transit through the digestive system, they don't seem to take up residence. And that's been a, a, a difficult thing to do, or maybe an impossible thing so far. Well, that's, that's exactly it. There are certain limitations to long-term manipulation of this and how to achieve that. That's at least my understanding, because please understand that when it comes to microbiome, I'm more of a bit of a generalist. So obviously I'm familiar with the topic because the technology that I'm very interested in and fascinated about, which is next generation sequencing, that that's what allowed us to start investigating the genetic diversity of that constitutes our microbiomes, right? But my approach is more of a generalist. It's not an area of specialty for me, but that's something that I think will hold important future in medicine, but I don't think we're there at the moment. We just need to be able to have a lot more studies, being able to establish solid correlations between certain states and clinical outcomes. And that takes time and a lot of money to establish, a lot of money especially. <laughs> yeah. It's expensive to do these studies. Well, what do you think is happening, uh, for instance, when someone is doing, uh, you said the point I brought up in the beginning. When someone's doing intermittent fasting, there's now the absence of their typical food. You know, the microbes are not all just starving to death. Certain ones probably are doing okay with maybe existing metabolites. Maybe there's ketones running around. Other ones maybe are starving to death and we're sugar dependent. Uh, what do you think is happening during an intermittent fast and, you know, over time what's happening? Yeah, I had a so by the way, I won't be mentioning any specific um, species of bacteria or anything like that. Okay, there's no way I could re remember that. But obviously, I've looked at some of the latest literature on the topic prior to our event as well to get uh, latest information, and it confirms what uh, what again in a generalist terms I already known before. But it appears that intermittent fasting does help your microbiome to shift towards 
what we would refer to as healthy microbiome. So what does that even mean? Let's say in a general terms, healthy microbiome is perhaps not as much bacteria in your gut as if you're in a disease state, but the diversity of what is present increases. And um, that's definitely observed with intermittent fasting. And um, there is also observed metabolism. Also, there is a shift. So then that means the shift that is typically observed that there is a greater capacity to start breaking down the, the type of food that does become available. So basically, it's as if our system becomes more better at utilizing whatever whatever comes our way more specifically than prior. And there's also positive immunological consequences. But, but how can it... system works better as well. Right, but bacteria, let's say, that are in croup, you know, very, very fast to double. Let's say certain bacteria, they double, I don't know, every 20 minutes if given the right food source. If not given that food source at all, I would think at best they go maybe into like a spore-like state where they would uh, dampen down their activity tremendously and they would their proliferation would slow or even cease. Meanwhile, other ones, let's say that, you know, persist on ketones or, you know, fatty acids or other products, they may be able to persist and even thrive. Yeah, that's logical, right? So that's that makes sense. You will have a limitation of resources at this point, and that could, that could at least explain maybe why we're seeing the quantity reduction while that, why, for example, diversity might, might increase because it provides the opportunity for other species to start expanding in quantity, which normally is what is associated with a healthy microbiome in general. When you start limiting that diversity, I mean, you could run the risk of increasing the amounts of those pathogenic bacterial species in your gut and and which are known to be linked to specific conditions, disease conditions. So what you're saying makes, right, make Logically, it makes perfect sense. But it's what is really exciting about the research is that more and more research is being done in humans because a lot of this research first is done on animal models, right? And that's not necessarily translational to what should be expected in humans. Obviously, microbiomes could be very different between us and, say, mice, which is which are the, the most frequently used animal models in these studies first. And so that's good news to see that more, more human studies are being done and patterns do start emerging where you see repetition of results. And it seems to me that intermittent fasting overall at, the, at this moment, it starts to steer the consensus that intermittent fasting is a healthy way of influencing your microbiome towards what would be a healthy state. Well, what about along with your line of work? Why not look at either common genetic uh, mutations or pathway differences, correlate that with the person's microbiome? You know, maybe people with uh, certain genetic pathway deficiencies or, you know, issues, they tend to have certain microbes in them while others don't. Absolutely. I agree with you. In theory, that would be possible the only thing is, is, do we have that interpretation or that knowledge available for interpretation? The most challenging aspect of looking at your DNA sequence is accurate interpretation of it for, for medical value. And you're talking about typically the current interpretation focuses on how mutations could be leading to 
health problems. So you're talking about another layer, which is valid, but that's the layer of the complexity. How do your mutations, for example, negatively impact healthy state of your microbiome? And I absolutely would believe that there there wouldn't be such mutations because microbiome, the way I think of microbiome in my generalist terms, is like another organ in your body or probably the more accurate way would be a series of different organs depending on different sites you're looking at because microbiome of course it does not exist in its isolation it influences how our body functions and informs our body how it's supposed to function and that communication is a two-way street our body tells microbiome what to do microbiome tells our body or our human cells what to do as well, well. But, but would microbiome change our underlying dna it may influence to have certain epigenetic marks or not, but unless something endogenizes it to our DNA, like a virus, if someone witnessed that, that would be crazy. But would it change the underlying DNA structure? Probably not. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. So I just want to make sure I understood this correctly. Would the microbiome potentially be able to alter the genomic structure of our own cells, human yes. cells? Exactly. Yes. Would they? Well... In terms of genetic plasticity, that's definitely possible in terms of that we know that foreign genetic material can be incorporated into genomes. So while very rare, it can happen. And this exists on purpose because while the negative consequence of such event could be that a person or an animal that experienced such an event could end up having a disease, but at the same time, it increases genetic diversity of the population. And genetic diversity is ultimately what defines the likelihood of survival in cataclysmic scenarios, right? So then diversity, genetic diversity could save the species. And so there is some leeway that allows incorporation of foreign material into our genomes. So our genomes are full of formally incorporated foreign materials, especially viruses, right? But either even other fragments of genetic material apparently have been seen being incorporated, such as um, RNAs that have been converted to DNA and incorporated by accident when the cellular damage, genetic damage that occurs all the time in our cells was being fixed. So could bacterial information be incorporated. You know what? I actually don't know, never looked into that, but I would not be surprised if once in a blue moon that completely could happen. And if that happens in the wrong place, that could potentially uh, lead to cancer development. I, I can envision that as a possibility. I did not look for that to determine whether bacterial genomes, whether there's evidence of ever bacterial genomes being incorporated into the human genome or fragments of bacterial genomes. But based on my background, I would not be surprised if it turned out to be a possible course of action. Would not be surprised. Does it really exist? I don't know. And the reason why is because, for example, one of the way of communicating, of communicating between our bodies and with the microbiome and the rest of our body is releasing tiny blobs of like, let's say tiny, they're called vesicles. You can cells release tiny bubbles of lipids that house specific information inside of them. And that can include some genetic information. And I would not be surprised if bacteria could do that as well. And if such a genetic information that 
a fragment of which was present in such a vesicle that was incorporated by some cell, this genetic information happened to have the right sequence that could then bring in inside nucleus. And by sheer accident, this while the cell is dividing, that genetic information was accidentally incorporated. I could see that. It just would be rare. And, and even if it happens once in a blue moon, most likely it's completely inconsequential because the body could clear it and so on. But once in a while, it could happen in gametes, meaning sperm or egg cells and that's then it can be passed on maybe to the next generation and voila you could be well, there are astrosomes yeah there are, i mean there's extracellular vesicles that do influence sperm you know there's prostosomes there's there's all kinds of things like that that i've read about question comes to mind uh, do you think that viruses are phages because there could be genetic material inside of an extracellular vesicle do you think that they would ever attempt to dock and enter into one of them or do you think they're too small or are they too delicate has anyone even looked to, and could you even characterize and see if this could happen, where a payload could be hijacked before it reaches its cellular destination? As in, if viruses could be interacting with exosomes or extracellular yeah. musicals? Yep. Yeah, in theory, again, I would see that's possible. I ne Again, I haven't seen that in myself. I know that you can use extracellular vesicles to help infection because we've seen that being documented i believe that but not in humans i think it was in other species because i did a series of videos on extracellular vesicles whether extracellular vesicles could be used for the purpose of shedding i was investigating whether it's possible to shed vaccinal material via vesicles and there is no answer to that so basically we don't know the answer to that scientifically. But we do know that we can breathe out, for example, extracellular vesicles. So we do know that. And we do know that we can have spike protein present in extracellular vesicles. So could, for example, extracellular vesicles have components of the membrane that would allow the virus to latch onto this? Again, I could see that as a possibility. Not sure. I don't know if that has happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if that could happen. And I know they can get, they can be tiny, but you know, I've interviewed people that said, you know, cancer cells will change their ED profile that they emit. And sometimes it'll be upregulated tremendously, but they'll definitely be uh, more targeted uh, EVs with, with certain payloads from, let's say, cancer cells. They may be used in communication between primary and metastatic, you know, tumors or who knows what. So I just wonder, again, if that's a vehicle for infection and transfection and and what happens with them. But there it's even harder, I guess, to, to figure out what's going on. I would see more likely, as opposed to maybe viruses interacting with them directly, I would much rather probably see that once the cells are infected by the virus, the extracellular vesicles that are released by such a cell, they would be altered, right? And they would actually start signaling oh, right. yeah. what's happening there. So like because certain protein levels could be changed, microRNAs, which the, these extracellular vesicles can transport, could change and, and so on. Because viral infection of a, of a cell dramatically influences the behavior of that cell. So what do you see in the next couple of years? What technologies are you know, you're starting to play with and use to better model what's going on? What out, what's out there that's new that's helping your work? And what questions do you think that you're getting closer to answering in the next few years? I think finally the technology starts allowing us to accumulate information to start linking predictions to these non-static information such as epigenetics or microbiome 
towards clinical outcomes. So that's the exciting part. We need, of course, like supercomputers for that, and we need a lot of data, but that's finally compiling. And that's where I think the exciting part will be is linking epigenetics or microbiome changes to more predictive outcomes. So that's where I think the future of medicine is going to be very, very exciting. And another one of those non-static changes would be, yeah, we mentioned the content of the extracellular vesicles as well, because all of that is in a constant interplay, right, with with the entire body. It's just simply many different languages, of, of molecular languages of communication. So that's the part that I'm excited about. And of course, the pandemic showed us how valuable sequencing can be to very accurately and precisely track information, genetic information of something like viral evolution as well. So then it really influenced how the pandemic also really dramatically influenced how we can understand the complexity of the immunology and how both the virus influences our immune system or really almost like an evolution of our own immune system and vice versa, how our immune system start influencing the evolution of the virus as well. So we're just the technologies allow us to start gaining more and more complex pictures that we simply were not able to even perceive to the smallest degree because we didn't have the technology to accumulate that information. So that's that's the exciting part, basically, where I think we're moving toward, where we can see how that, that information that can fluctuate easily, but when you hit the right window, you can interpret that window as to hey, what does that mean for a specific disease state? So that one day, possibly, exactly as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, you could be doing your microbiome every six months and regularly for throughout your entire life and tracking that information so that you can then do appropriate actions to maintain it in a specific pattern. Makes sense, yeah. Okay. Well, very good, Mikolaj. What's the best place for people to find more about Merogenomics, where can they go? Uh, Merogenomics.ca, the website, and the other really popular site will be my YouTube channel, Merogenomics, basically. That's just because that's probably where I've seen, well, not probably, that's where I've seen the largest growth, that's for sure, and um, okay. very popular channel as well. And I steer the information that I provide more in the direction of studying molecular biology when it comes to in relation to COVID-19 and vaccines as well. And some intermittent fasting as well. Definitely you got into intermittent fasting big time myself. I'm still studying the information. So I haven't released many videos on, on that topic on a couple. But but I can tell you, for example, I have adopted intermittent fasting as part of my everyday lifestyle because of the science. Oh, uh, how many hours? Typically, I try to... Ideally, if I can, if I can get my stuff together, <laughs> you know what I mean? I will finish my meal. I will have my meal somewhere between 2 and 6 p.m. That's it. So all my food intake would be ideally within that time frame. And the reason why... So a 20-hour 20 hour fasting window there? Right. It's, and it doesn't have to be necessarily 20 hours. So like 16, 8, you could put it into that. The reason why I aim to finish around 5, 6 is because then supposedly the autophagy benefits of intermittent fasting happen in the midst of your sleep and that apparently helps to be more beneficial for repairing your brain activity. 
So because of that's where more of the autophagy is then activated in your brain. Hence, then you can break your fasting with breakfast. But I'm so used to not having breakfast these days that I typically don't eat anything till at least lunch. Okay. So typically, yeah, my fasting is, let's just for sake of simplicity, it's 16, 8, but it's realistically, it's probably more like 19 and 5. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, Mark. Well, very good, Miklaj. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.